All right, so I know it's been a minute. Cold kind of kicked my butt, but I'm back, sort of. So please excuse the gravelly voice. So we're going to start with the rise of mass democracy. This is going to run 1820 to 1840, so a shorter time period than most of the sections that we've discussed. We're going to start off with the new democracy. So by the 1820s, a lot of your politicians are going to make this increased effort to appeal to the voting masses. Uh, most of the high offices are still going to be held by wealthy citizens, but they still want to appeal to the everyday, like, working man. <clears throat> now, the emphasis change. So you've got the Jeffersonian democracy, where people should be governed as little as possible, and this whole idea of the government for the people. And it's going to go into a Jacksonian democracy, where the government should be done directly by the people. And this idea is an underlay of Jackson's spool systems in the 1830s. The new democracy was based on a, or on the idea of universal white manhood suffrage rather than property qualifications. So the common man now has more influence when it comes to politics. So between 1812 and 1821, there's going to be six new western states that are going to grant universal manhood suffrage. Now, again, this is not, you know, women are not able to vote. Obviously, black people are not able to vote. Natives aren't even, as you know, part of this picture. Uh, between 1810 and 1821, we're going to get four eastern states that are going to reduce these voting requirements again, but this is still the universal white manhood. Now, by 1860, only the New England states are going to allow African Americans to vote in the North, so that's it. Uh, the South was the last region to grant universal white manhood suffrage, meaning they still had that property um, requirement. Now, new voters are going to demand that politicians represent common people's interest instead of just the wealthy elite. Frederick Jackson Turner wrote The Significance of the Frontier on American History in 1893. <clears throat> now, the thesis for this was that the existence of cheap, unsettled land in the West created a frontier society that will shape the American character. So, the U.S. became more democratic and egalitarian. You get a rise in the working men's parties. So the laborers in the East are going to form organizations that are going to demand free education for their children, a 10-hour workday, you know, significantly reducing from the 14 or the 16, and an end to the debtor's prison because we talked, that, talked about that a little bit. It's a continuous cycle. If you're in prison because you're in debt, how are you supposed to work to pay off your debt? You're actually just going to go into more debt. Uh, in some of these cases... Some of the groups are going to become more violent, like the, the, the Panic of 1837. Now, we're going to get into the causes of the new democracy. So, like I said, the, there was another panic, the Panic of 1837. Well, we're going to start with the Panic of 1819. Now, workers and farmers are going to blame the bankers, especially the Bank of the U.S. or the BUS, B-U-S, and speculators for the foreclosures on their farms. Their solution was to get more politically involved, especially those who supported Jackson. In case you can hear, Chaz is doing all kinds of noisy things in the background. You're noisy. 
He's just looking at me. Anyway. All right. So they're going to seek to increase influence on the government in order to reform the bus. The back of the U.S. The state legislatures, they're going to start waging a tax war against the bus. So you'll have like McClellan versus Maryland where they said that even though the Bank of the U.S. was in Maryland, Maryland doesn't have the right to tax. It has to go to the Supreme Court. la de la de la And the states are going to pass laws reducing debtors' prison. This is all part of the panic. Then we had the Missouri Compromise. So there's going to be northern opposition to uh, Missouri being admitted into the Union as a slave state because this is going to make southerners... <clears throat> Sorry, this opposition is going to make Southerners uh, fearful that the federal government would violate states' rights. And then the whole goal of the white Southerners was to control the federal government to protect Southern interests, especially slavery. Then we get into the new political age. Now, there's going to be a two-party system that's going to reemerge by 1832. You end up with the Democrats versus the National Republicans or the Whigs. It's kind of an interchangeable name at that time. The voter, 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 sorry, the voter turnout is going to uh, rise dramatically. Back in 1824, only about 25 percent of the eligible voters would actually come out to vote. In 1840, you get around 78 percent, and there's going to you're going to have a new style of campaigning that's going to come about. Uh, by the 1840 election, people are going to start putting out banners. Uh, handing out badges, there'll be parades and barbecues, giving out lots and lots of beer at the, like the voter stations, baby kissing, you know, just anything to make them look like they're just a regular Joe. Then we get into voting reform. So members of the Electoral College were increasingly chosen directly by the people rather than by state legislature. So that kind of gives more of that Again, every man feeling. Uh, 18 of the 24 states in the 1824 election are going to use the popular vote to select electors. And this practice kind of resembles today's system. <clears throat> now, the demise of the caucus is going to occur as now it's viewed as elitist. And in the caucus system, there's going to be members of Congress who would meet in groups to nominate candidates for president. In 1831, the first nominating convention was held by the anti-Masonic party. Lots and lots of parties. <clears throat> By 1836, both major parties are going to use a nominating convention to nominate their candidates. Then we get into the election of 1824. Uh, this is also known as the corrupt bargain. So, there's going to be four candidates. We had Andrew Jackson, Henry Clay, uh, William H. Crawford, and John Quincy Adams, which, you know, is the descendant of John Adams. And all four were rival Republicans because there was only still one party at that time. Uh, Jackson is going to poll the most popular votes, but he's not going to get a majority of the electoral vote. Now, the 12th Amendment states that the House of Representatives has to choose among the top three finishers if no candidate has a majority. Uh, Clay is going to finish fourth, Henry Clay. But he's also the Speaker of the House at the time and is in charge of the process to select the new president, which to me sounds like conflict of interest, but they didn't ask me. Uh, Clay pretty much hated Jackson, and 
he looked at him as his major political opponent opponent in the West. And Adams was a nationalist who supported Clay's American system. So obviously we know who he's going to go with. In early 1825, the House is going to elect Adams as president. And this was because, largely because of Clay's influence. Jackson is going to lose the election despite having the plurality of votes. And Adams is going to announce Clay as Secretary of State in a few days. Jackson supporters called, <coughs> sorry, they called that whole affair the corrupt bargain. Adams' presidency would be plagued by increasing sectionalism and the fracturing of the Republican Party. Then we get the Tariff of Abominations in 1824. There's just a whole lot of issues, obviously, in this time period. Uh, Congress had increased the tariff in 1824 from 23% on any dutiable goods to 37 and the tariff was largely supposed to be protective. New, England, New Englanders are going to push for passage of a new tariff in 1828 that would raise duties to an unprecedented 45%. So, you know, it's like it's a ridiculous amount you're having to pay as a tax. Uh, Daniel Webster is going to argue for it. He's going to reverse his previous position on the 1816 tariff. And John Calhoun is going to argue against it, arguing the tariff would hurt the South, which, you know, it would. Uh, the tariff is going to pass, and obviously the South is going to be furious. They call it the Tariff of Abominations. Uh, Southerners are going to fear the power of the federal government again. They feel like it's getting too strong. They're also going to argue that they're going to suffer as both consumers and exporters. Calhoun and the, Southern, the South Carolina Exposition is going to secretly write <coughs> because, sorry, because Calhoun was added vice president. So they really want to come out, you know, against something that the president okayed. Uh, this little exposition, this little passage is going to denounce the tariff as unjust and unconstitutional. And it's going to claim that states should nullify the tariff. Uh, his whole idea was that he hoped to save the union by lowering the offensive tariff, but no other states would support South, South Carolina and its protests. So it just kind of, you know, went by the wayside. The election of 1828, there's going to be a lot of feuding between the two factions of the Republican Party. You're going to have the National Republicans that are going to support the current president, J.Q. Adams. They're also going to accuse Jackson's wife, Rachel Robards Jackson, R-O-B-A-R-D-S, of being a bigamist, meaning that she is married to more than one person at a time. And the Democrats, so we're going to start to see, you know, <clears throat> the Democrats starting to rise more. They're going to support Jackson. Now, Jackson is going to defeat Adams with 178 electoral, electoral votes to 83, and he's going to be the first president from the West. He's going to be seen as the great common man. But the thing about it is he actually had one of the largest plantations in the West, and he owned a lot of slaves, so he wasn't really much of a common man. <laughs> uh, Jackson's support came from the West, the South, and the laborers on the East Coast. A lot of his support came from the machine politicians, especially in New York and Pennsylvania. And Adams is going to win New England and the wealthy voters in the Northeast because they're going to see that, or they're going to feel like that they um, that they align more with like what his values would be. Okay. Uh, the election came to be known as the Revolution of 1828. No sitting president had been removed since John Adams in 1800, so, you know, that's 28 years. 
the increased voter turnout, turnout from the new democracy was very decisive. You have this political balance of power that's going to be shifting from the east to the expanding west. <coughs> Sorry. And up until this point, America had been ruled by the educated wealthy elites, so like your Federalist shippers and your Jeffersonian planters. Now, Andrew Jackson, also called Old Hickory, he is going to personify the New West. He saw the, the federal government as a haven for wealth that was detached from the common folks. Like Jefferson, he wants to reduce the role of the federal government in favor of states' rights, and he's going to hate Clay's American system, which they just hate each other, period. <clears throat> uh, he was a strong unionist and a nationalist, and he believed in the federal supremacy over the states. He also believed in a strong presidency, so he's going to defy the will of Congress and the Supreme Court. So he used his veto 12 times, while his six predecessors combined only used a veto 10 times. So think about that. Um, he's going uh, to flout the authority of the Supreme Court. And a lot of his opponents are actually going to call him King Andrew I because of what they believed as an abuse of power. So his spoil system. Now this was brought to the federal government on a large scale. The practice is going to involve rewarding political supporters with public offices regardless of merit. So, you know, one would think that that's no-no, which it is today. We've gotten rid of the, so the spoil system and it's illegal, and you now use the merit system. <clears throat> so that was, it was, you know, about did you support this, this particular political figure? If you did, you got the job. Uh, Jackson also is going to believe in the idea of rotation in office or turnabout is fair play. Uh, he let as many citizens as possible hold office for at least a short time. He also see, sought to remove the Adams-Clay officials and replace them <clears throat> with loyal Jacksonians. So he wanted his people in office, obviously. Um, the thing about it is only 20% of the incumbents were removed. He still set this whole president for a clean sweep in the subsequent presidencies, which is what a lot of them do. They take out the those who were maybe loyal to the last president and put their, their own in place. Now, the consequences of this spoil system is you had a national political machine that was built around Jackson and his ideals. Uh, competence and merit were subordinated, and many of these able citizens were left out, and a lot of political corruption is going to result from this. All right, sectionalism in the Jackson administration. So you had the kitchen cabinet. So Jackson met at times with an unofficial group of about 13 temporary advisors. <clears throat> Some of them were newspaper, newspaper people, whose like, job was to keep Jackson in touch with public opinion. Critics branded these members as the kitchen cabinet because they were angry that advisors were not answerable to Congress, as was the official cabinet. And Congress saw it as a threat to the checks and balances, which, I mean, it could be. Um, the group, was, group never met officially, and its influence was greatly exaggerated. Um, it's not technically unconstitutional. Because presidents are free to consult with any unofficial advisors, but like I said, it just kind of um, kind of upset Congress there a little bit. Webster-Hain debate, H-A-Y-N-E. 
This is going to be in 1830. So Senator Robert Hayne is going to argue against the Tariff of Abominations of 1828. As a South Carolinian, he represented a state's rights view. He's also going to accuse New England of disloyalty during the War of 1812. He's going to condemn them and their what he considered to be their selfishness regarding the protective tariff. He will proclaim that Calhoun, because he's one of Calhoun's protégés, uh, his doctrine of nullification was the only means of protecting Southern rights, and Hayes' arguments were later used by nullifiers and successionists. <clears throat> Daniel Webster from New England spoke on behalf of the Union. He insisted the people, not the states, had framed the Constitution, and he assailed the doctrine of nullification. He is going to refute Jefferson and Madison's compact theory of government in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. Uh, liberty and Union, now and forever, one and inseparable, was one of his uh, part of one of his speeches. Now, the result of the de debate between Webster and Hayne was it illustrated the rising sectionalism in the country because you know it's becoming more and more North versus South, and some of the credit Webster or some some of the people would credit Webster for helping win the Civil War by arousing a new generation of Northerners to fight for the ideal of the Union. Uh, Calhoun is going to resign the vice presidency in 1832. So then you get the 1832 tariff controversy is going to become a major wedge between Calhoun and Jackson. And up until this time, Calhoun had publicly been a strong nationalist. He saw himself in line for the presidency after Jackson served one term. Uh, his falling out with Jackson destroyed any kind of presidential hopes that he had. Uh, he's going to end up becoming a fierce sectionalist, and he's going to be a leader of Senate and try to protect slavery and what he perceived as states' rights. Then there'll be the nullification controversy of 1832. So South Carolina was still upset over the tariff of abominations. The tariff was to be, you know, seen as as punitive. So like they're just doing it to hurt them. Uh, it's going to be seen as a precedent for federal interference with states' rights in the long term. Uh, the push for nullification in South Carolina legislature had actually failed in 1832. Then the tariff of 1832. So Jackson is going to attempt to lower the tariff uh, to conciliate the South. Congress lowers the duties from 35 or 235 from about 45. Uh, the law was still protective and it was not a revenue based tariff. So it's going to fall. The, the meeting is going to or Jackson's attempts, I should say, is going to fall short of the Southern demands. Um, Jackson is going to condemn the nullifications, and he's actually going to threaten to hang the nullifiers, including his uh, ex-vice president, Calhoun. Uh, Henry, Henry Clay is going to propose a compromise tariff in 1833, the compromise is going to be squeezed through Congress. Uh, South Carolina is going to reluctantly repeal its nullification ordinance. Then you had the force bill. This is going to be passed by Congress as a face-saving device. And the president in the future could use military force to collect federal tariffs if necessary. And it was dubbed the bloody bill. Now, the aftermath of all this is it's basically a stepping stone to the Civil War. There was this whole crisis. You know, this compelled... The split between Jackson and Calhoun. And then Clay is going to be seen <clears throat> as an appeaser for the South by the Northerners. 
the election of 1832. So Henry Clay is going to be up against Andrew Jackson. Jackson is favor is favored as a one-term president, but his followers, his cronies are going to convince him to stay. Clay was the author of the American system. He was a war hawk and he was a Western senator. But Jackson is going to f defeat Clay 219 to 49 in the Electoral College. Uh, Jackson had the support of the masses that overwhelmed the vote for the wealthier Americans. So we have a new political features that these or we have new political features that are going to be introduced in this campaign. The anti-Masonic party is going to be the first third party in American presidential elections. Uh, it's going to oppose the secrecy of the Masonic order, which, you know, was an 18th, 18th century fraternal organization, which is still, uh, still in use today. The Masons are recruit, um, the, what they consider to be upwardly mobile middle-class professionals like George Washington, Andrew Jackson, and the Masons were accused of using its membership to influence the appointment of office and to gain economically at the expense of the masses. So the anti-Masonic party are going to attract a lot of these evangelical groups that want to fuse moral and religious, religious reforms with politics. So like keeping the Sabbath day holy, that kind of thing. All right, Jackson's economic policy. So his main aim was to divorce the government from the economy. So basically laissez-faire. He was anti-monopoly. He wanted to return to Jeffersonian democracy, that, you know, the government's role should be limited. And he wanted to give more powers to the state so we would have more equality of opportunity. Now, at the, uh, one of the other things that Jackson wanted to do is he wanted to end the bus. He's going to distrust it. He thinks it's the moneyed monster and it's just a huge business. And he didn't really like huge businesses either. Um, he is quoted for saying, the bank is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. He was concerned because if if he rechartered it, if he signed it, uh, he'd alienate his Western supporters. And then if he vetoed it, he would alienate those wealthy and influential supporters uh, over in the East or, you know, the uh, New England states. Um, but he still looked at the bank as mo monopolistic, as unconstitutional. Um, Jackson, like I said, you know, he would flout the Supreme Court. He's going to act if the president, as if the president was superior to the judicial branch because the Supreme Court had already ruled the, the bus constitutional and McClellan versus Maryland. Uh, Jackson's message is going to appeal to the masses. And in response, the Senate is going to censor Jackson. It's going to be later expunged by the Democrats. Now, before it was killed by Jackson, the bus did have some strengths. It was a sound organization. It reduced a lot of the bank failures. It would issue sound bank notes. You know, this is at the time when the U.S. was flooded with depreciated paper, local, and state money instead of federal money. And it's also going to spur economic expansion by creating credit and currency that's available to businesses. And it was also a safe depository for your federal funds. And it would transfer and disperse its money. Now, the pet bank scheme. Now, Jackson's aim was to weaken the bus. And he's going to transfer federal deposits from the bus to 23, or, yeah, 23 state pet banks. Now, this was overseen by Secretary of Treasury Roger Taney, 
who would be appointed by Jackson as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So if you see where I'm going here. Now, this is going to effectively kill the Second National Bank four years before it was set to expire. The Specie Circular, S-P-E-C-I-E. These uh, public lands now had to be purchased with hard money. In 1836, wildcat currency had become unreliable, especially in the West. And this is, this is going to exacerbate the ongoing inflation problem. Jackson is going to authorize the Treasury to issue a specie circular. So hard money brought hard times to the West as farmers did not have hard money to buy land. The inflation is going to continue, and it's going to lead to land speculation that contributed to the Panic of 1837. Maysville Road Veto. Now, Jackson is going to favor state rights, and this is going to be at the expense of economic nationalism. He's also going to refuse to spend federal money for intrastate internal improvements, so like roads and canals. Uh, the strong state's rights principle is what's going to... Um, lead him to this. He's also going to veto the bill for improving the Maysville Road in Kentucky. Um, Jackson was one of the main proponents for the removal of the indigenous. By 1830, most of the territories east of the Mississippi had become states, and most indigenous tribes were surrounded by white settlements. Jackson did not regard the tribes as separate nations within individual states. <laughs> he <clears throat> Um, he harbored some protective feelings toward them, but he still saw them as uncivilized. So then we had the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Jackson proposed the bodily removal of the remaining natives, especially the five civilized nations, and those consisted of the Cherokee, the Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Seminoles. And these are going to be on the Mississippi to what was considered Indian, Indian territory, which is modern-day Oklahoma. The individual... Indigenous might remain if they adopted white ways. Now, as a result, more than 100,000 indigenous were forcibly uprooted and moved in the 1830s. The U.S. government promised that the indigenous lands in Indian territory would remain permanently in Indian hands as, you know, as long as the grass grows and the water runs. Uh, Land-hungry Americans would continue to push west and eventually encroach on Indian territory in the 1880s and the 1890s which we, you know, we started reading about a little bit in um, the Lakotas and the Black Hills. And then the Bureau of Indian Affairs was is established in 1836, and their job was to administer relations with the indigenous, which they didn't do a very good job. Now, the Cherokee, they developed certain aspects of soci society similar to whites. Uh, Sequoia is going to create a Cherokee Syllabic alphabet of 85 characters, and the Cherokee had their own newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix. They wrote a constitution similar to the U.S. with a similar electoral system, which this whole idea of democracy and the constitution had already been kind of perfected by the five civilized tribes. It was just more of a... Um, More like a grouping instead of like the individual tribes. All right, they're going to establish effective agricultural-based economy. And despite strong attempts to simulate, the Cherokee are not accepted by white society because they're still different. The Cherokee Nation is going... <clears throat> uh, they have, uh, Sorry. They originally sat on what was considered to be very valuable land in northeast Georgia because there was gold discovered in 1829. 
and the land can be used for cotton and was coveted by land-hungry white farmers. The Cherokee right to land had been recognized in the Treaty of 1791, but most of the Georgians ignored the federal laws. So the Georgian nation versus, sorry, the Cherokee nation versus Georgia. This is going to be in 1831. So the Cherokee is going to challenge a Georgia law that made Cherokee laws null and void. The Supreme Court is going to rule the Cherokee lacked jurisdiction over its land as it was a domestic dependent nation possessing some sovereignty but not a foreign nation. And this is going to represent a major blow to Cherokee rights as being an independent nation. In Worcester versus Georgia, 1832. John Marshall is going to rule that Virginia laws had no jurisdiction inside Cherokee territory and the Cherokee could invite whomever it wished on its land. Samuel Worcester, a missionary that was living with the Cherokee for years, was forced by Georgia to take an oath of allegiance or leave Cherokee land. He refused and was arrested. Worcester was released from jail within three months. And despite the court's support for Cherokee autonomy on its lands, Jackson proceeded with the American-Indian removal. And then we had the Trail of Tears. Absolutely horrible. In 1838, 18,000 Cherokee were forcibly removed from their homes and marched a 1,000 miles in, or a 1,000 miles to Indian Territory, again in Oklahoma. Over 4,000 will die from malnutrition, exposure, cholera, and the harsh treatment. Soldiers would force the march with rifles and bayonets. Earlier, 25% of Choctaws died en route to Indian Territory between 1831 and 1835. 25%. 25%. 3,500 of 15,000 Creeks would die during the removal in 1836. Are you seeing a pattern? All right, the Black Hawk War, 1832. Uh, Braves in Illinois and Wisconsin were led by Black Hawk, and they would resist the removal on their lands west of Lake Huron. Obviously, they're going to be pushed out. They're going to be crushed by the U.S. troops. And the area west of Lake Michigan will be open for white settlement. Seminoles in Florida were ordered by the U.S. to merge with their old enemy, the Creek, and relocate to Indian Territory. They're going to refuse as the Creek were slave owners and many Seminoles had, esca had escaped Creek slavery. They're going to wage a bloody guerrilla war in the Second Seminole War, and that will leave around 1,500 U.S. soldiers dead. It was the bloodiest American Indian conflict or indigenous conflict in U.S. history. Four out of five, or 3,000, were forcibly moved to Oklahoma, and there's still around 3,000 today. So not really much of a population increase, as you can tell. All right, the birth of Texas. So the U.S. is going to drop its claim to Texas when it bought Florida from Spain in 1819. In 1823, there's going to be a newly dependent Mexico that's going to grant Stephen Austin the right to settle in Texas. Immigrants were to be Catholic, and they had to be properly Mexicanized. Our restrictions were largely ignored by Americans in Texas. There's going to be friction between Mexicans and Americans occurring over slavery, immigration, and local rights. Mexico had emancipated its slaves in 1830 and prohibited importation of slaves into Texas. Mexico is eventually going to prohibit further settlement by Americans because they're not playing by their rules. Uh, Texans are going to refuse to abide by these decrees. And in 1835, the Mexican dictator Santa Ana is going to outlaw all local rights and raise an army to exert control in Texas. 
1836, Texas will declare independence. Uh, Sam Houston was the commander-in-chief. Santa Ana's 6,000-man army is going to invade Texas. To, uh, about 342 American volunteers were killed when they surrendered at uh, Galad. And all Americans at the Alamo, including Davy, Cro uh, Davy Crockett and James Bowie, were killed. Houston's armies were victorious at the Battle of San Jacinto, J-A-C-I-N-T-O. Uh, Santa Ana is going to sign two treaties. The with one of those is the withdrawal of the Mexican troops, and the other one is going to recognize the Rio Grande as Texas's southern border. <clears throat> Santa Ana and the Mexican government are going to repudiate the treaties upon his release, leaving the Texas issue unresolved. American aid was important to Texas fighting for independence because there was the political opinion would nullify the existing U.S. neutrality, and the Mexicans complained that the U.S. was obligated to honor its international neutrality law. Uh, the issue of a potential new slave state is going to stir up sectionalism all over again. For Jackson, recognizing Texas might hurt the election for his hand-picked successor, Martin Van Buren, for president. Uh, Texas officially petitioned to be annexed, so you have the anti-slit anti-slavery Whigs in the North who are going to oppose it, while the Southern Democrats will welcome the idea of annexation because you get this whole brand new massive state that they can have slavery in. Alright, um, Texas is going to be left to protect itself as an independent nation. They feared the reprisals from Santa Ana and Mexico, so they're going to court Britain and France for aid, and there's going to be a balance of power politics that will threaten the Southern U.S., so the election of 1836, this is going to be the birth of the Whigs, and these are the heirs of Hamilton's Federalist ideas. They're going to emerge in 1834 when Clay and Calhoun joined forces to pass a motion censoring Jackson for his removal of the federal deposits from the bus because they both hated Jackson. A lot of people do. Uh, they're going to evolve into a national political party of groups alienated by Jackson. So these are going to be your supporters of Clay's American system. Uh, states ride right at... <clears throat> states rights advocates uh larger northern industrialists and merchants uh evangelical protestants and nativists who were opposed to irish immigration <coughs> uh, many of the whig principles were the foundation for the modern day republican party <coughs> sorry republican party and uh, William Henry Harrison is going to be the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe. Mm. And he's going to emerge as a Whig candidate defeating Clay. Martin Van Buren was Jackson's hand-picked successor. Uh, when he was old and ailing, Jackson is going to decide not to run for a third term. Because remember, we didn't have these the amount of term limits just yet. Uh, he's going to decide to run a third term vicariously through Van Buren, and Van Buren is going to defeat Harrison 130 to 73. Now, the election of 1832 is going to usher in the second party system. So the Democrats and the Whigs would dominate national politics until 1852, and the first party system is going to last from around 1796 to 1816, and that's the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans. 
Now, the Panic of 1837, the causes. Now, the most important cause was over-speculation. So land speculators in the West are going to borrow heavily from this wildcat banks, and this is going to spread to canals, roads, and slaves, and they were unable to pay back loans, causing bank failures. <clears throat> Jackson's, or Jackson, Jacksonian finance, including the bus war and the, the uh, specie circular, are going to hurt the economy. We had a flower riot because a lot of the crops are going to fail, so this is going to force grain prices to go so high that there's going to be New York mobs that are going to storm the warehouse and they're going to break over and break open flower barrels. <clears throat> and this is all, there's also going to be a failure of two major British banks that are going to cause English investors to call in their foreign loans, and this is going to again hurt the U.S. banks, and it's going to help trigger the beginning of the panic. Now the result of this was. There's going to be a lot of American banks collapse, including those pet banks of, of Jackson's. Uh, commodity prices and the sale of public land is going to fall. Factories are going to close. Unemployment, obviously, is going to soar. And then there's going to be a depression that's going to last for about five years. Now, the Whig proposal was to... Oh, sorry. The Whig proposal was blocked by President Van Buren. Because, again, limited government. Remember, Van Buren is Jackson's little little lackey there. <clears throat> uh, Whigs wanted expansion of bank credit, higher tariffs, and internal improvement funds. Again, that American system of clays. Then we had the Treasury Bill of 1840, also known as the Divorce Bill. So Van Buren was convinced that part of the Depression was due to federal funds being given to private banks. So he's going to hold the idea of the Jacksonian principle of divorcing government from banks. The independent treasury system is going to be established, meaning that the government could put its surplus in certain banks in several of the nation's larger cities. Funds were safe, but it denied the banking system of reserves, which decreased available credit resources. Now, the policy was condemned by the Whigs. It's like it just goes back and forth. And it's going to be repealed next year when they win the presidency. So the election of 1840... Van Buren was nominated again by the Democrats, and the Whigs again chose William H. Harrison over both Clay and Webster. The slogan was Tippecanoe and Tyler too, so J John Tyler was the Whig vice presidential candidate. Uh, voters are going to blame the Depression on Van Buren and, you know, the whole party in power, and the Whigs are going to create uh, false myths about Harrison being a poor farmer from a log cabin, so log cabin and hard cider was like the like his like little slogan thing uh, he was actually born in a wealthy plantation in virginia so you know bull uh harrison's gonna defeat van buren 234 to 60 in the electoral college this is gonna be the first mass turnout election in american history there's gonna be a lot of propaganda some silly slogans and this is gonna actually set an unfortunate example for future campaigns that you know as went on to today. Uh, the Liberty Party, this is going to be the first anti-extension of slavery party, was also in the race with James G. Burney as its candidate. Okay, so that's where we're going to end. Your terms to know should already be posted. Yay. Oh, well, actually, there's one little thing because y'all kind of talk about this. So, you've kind of asked, so 1792 is you've got your Democratic Republicans with your Jeffersonians, and then you have uh, your Federalists, which are your Hamiltonians. Uh, in 1816, 
you have a death of the Federalists, so, and then it's not really the Democratic Republicans, you have a one-party rule, and the, you know, and it's just the Republicans, this was known as the era of good feelings, then we're going to have a split in 1825, you get back to the Democratic Republicans, or the Jacksonians, and then the Federalists turn into the, or, you know, like I said, the Republicans break apart, but Following the transition, it would be the Federalists. They're the National Republicans or the followers of Clay. In 1834, the Democratic Republicans turn into just the Democrats, and that stays that way up until today. And um, 1834, the National Republicans become the Whigs. 1854, the Whigs become the Republicans and... That's, you know, since 18, 18, yeah, sorry, since 1854, that's pretty much how our party system has been done.